But like whenever there's like big news or conversation or a debate, you could do this like reenactment where it's Brian, but you're just like talking to yourself in the comedy TikTok way. But you could put this like reporting aspect to it or like rehashing something that happened in the beer news by doing it with these characters in just like a 30 to 60 second format. I think that it's, it's like a quarter baked idea. Welcome into another edition of the Hops and Spirits Bar Conversations podcast. It's another fun one. We're under the influence of craft beer once again. We have a, a great group here tonight. If you're watching, you can see who, who it is. If you're listening, you'll have to wait just another second. Don't forget to check us out on all of our social media if it's working. Hopefully it is by now. We're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, at Hopspirits, all one word. We're also online at Hopspirits.com, which might be the best place for you to to find us these days you can check out our friday 5 q a our cocktail quickie videos and our also our give it a try highlights as well so we got lots going on there and we just wrapped up whiskey weeks 2021 where it was all whiskey and bourbon that was presented by none other than knows your bourbon like your nose knows your bourbon n-o-s-e where you can get the original nosing kit that has 18 different original aromas so you can learn a lot more of those nuances act like you know what you're talking about and not just think people are making up these crazy uh, stories on what they think is in a bourbon or whiskey. That's Knows Your Bourbon. Find them on social media and knowsyourbourbon.com. But we're under the influence of craft beer. And with me tonight is just two guys. We're going a, a, we're just running a three-man show tonight. We have Brian Roth, editor and writer at Good Beer Hunting and director of the North American Guild of Beer Writers. Brian, welcome back. Thank you. I always just say everything tastes like stone fruit fruit when I try wine. So that's actually a really great instance for me to expand my vocabulary <laughs> for other, other alcoholic beverages. Thanks. And we have Doug Velicki, Chief Strategy Officer for Revolution Brewing and founder of BeerCruncher's.com. Welcome back, Doug. Thanks for having me, Jonathan. Happy to be here. And, and you know, it, it, it's funny that, that you mentioned that I, we were on a, a flight night uh, last month. And talking, one of the guys was talking about champagne, trying to open a champagne bottle. And, you know, sometimes accidentally it just you know, pops off. And he said the best way for that to happen is just go, happy anniversary. And either it's funny or it's true. And no one, and you just move on and no one's the, the, the wiser. So. I'm more of a saber or bust guy. Uh, so, you know, you're going to impress somebody or lose a hand, I guess. Um. <laughs> but we're, we're here not to talk funny stories, although we might, I don't know. Uh, but I, I feel like it worked out perfect because uh, when we were recording this, we record this a little earlier in the week than when it drops. Uh, Brian tweeted out something I thought was almost perfect because you see a lot of big breweries doing this. I think it was, was it Pabst Blue um, Ribbon that's looking at seltzers? Uh, it was Labatt. Labatt. Um, yeah. Uh, parent company, Fifeco, formerly known as North American United, I believe it was or something of that sort. Yeah, so, so you see all these bigger places doing, you know, these new things, ready-to-drink cocktails, seltzer brands, you know, truly, and, and some of those are owned by Boston Beer that many people might not know who owns them, but uh, they'd be surprised that it's one of the big boys. But on a local level, you know, I mean, I mean, so Great Lakes Brewing now has a seltzer brand that they just released. On a local level, what can locals do to kind of keep up with this or do they even need to do anything because i mean i feel like last last under the influence we talked maybe they have to have at least a seltzer on on tap but you know i feel like nowadays you almost have to have everything in the tap room uh to to just reach anyone that's coming in 
Doug, uh, I would love to let you take lead off on this, maybe for like the actual local view of what you see and what you've had in conversations with your colleagues. Um, I certainly have a lot of interest in kind of like the big picture national view. Sure. Um, so uh, do they need, do local breweries need to do anything? Um, in my opinion, no. Uh, you don't need to do anything uh, at Revolution. You know, we're the biggest brewery in Illinois. We're, we're a good size, and we have not spent more than a minute really talking about or considering any of these, which I think is, is unusual. Um, but that leads into, like, why? Like, to me, if you're going to – but I, I certainly think you can, and it's, it's a, a viable option for local breweries. But the, the key for me is that – someone, if not ideally multiple people at the brewery need to be excited to do this. Um, and that would include, you know, at, at least one key person who's like the creator of the liquid and then other people that are going to help champion it. If you don't have that, it's going to be a soulless product. And that's probably going to come through in all of the marketing that would be needed to get people to know what these are because there's so many out there. So um, if there's nobody who's really excited about it, um, I don't give them much of a chance of succeeding as much of anything. Now, if we're talking about having one available at your small tap room so that when you know, a birthday party comes in and then there's two of the people aren't big beer fans, but like seltzers, if you wanna have an option for that, I mean, absolutely. It all, de it all depends on the size and scale of the brewery and what kind of level they're trying to compete with compete at? Are they just focused on the local bottle shops? Or are they the kind that gets to that grocery store level where they need to compete in that environment? But to me in general, I think that they're distractions for most craft breweries um, with exceptions, but I think that they're just going to make you, uh, you know, I just think there's not enough people around at the brewery to focus on two usually separate brands and you end up spreading your attention and uh, both things will likely suffer in the long run. So um, I've been a pro uh, proponent at Revolution, uh, especially since I have not heard of anybody in our brewery like really excited to make any of these products. Uh, without that, I've been a, you know happy to stay away from it and just say, let's put all of our energy in, into being as div diverse within beer uh, as we can. So that's what we've where we spent our time. Yeah, I, I think... The, the biggest thing for, for breweries of maybe regional, especially local size, uh, this is plays out both in terms of what I see and the way that they approach things through their uh, retail sales, as well as conversations I've had with producers is it, exactly what Doug said, is that uh, if it doesn't fit within, you know, the kind of natural ethos extension of who you are, like you can do it. Uh, you could certainly, you know, you could ferment some cane sugar, throw in some flavoring uh, and probably make a few bucks off of it. Um, but from there, it kind of breaks out into two categories for me. It's places that I see that are doing this um, because it helps to offset losses elsewhere. That's typically going to be larger regional craft breweries. Um, like Funky Buddha has come to mind and in conversation uh, in recent months, because if you look at there, so this is the retail sales and, and retail chain, their beer has not done particularly well, slightly declined this year. Um but they've kind of offset that by their seltzer brands. 
Um, on the flip side of that, there is a brewery like Urban Artifact out of Ohio, uh, which has built their entire brewery, uh, their ethos, who they are around this idea of wild, sour, funky beers. And they have uh, released a line of tart seltzers that matches exactly what they do. It's heavily fruited. They use lactobacillus to give it that kind of sour tart flavor that people may expect from the, the beer that they get from them. And so there's a natural connection, the way that they can talk about it, the way they can make it, that can have that matter. And that's as part of, you know, a diversification of what they make, not necessarily just a natural, just an extension for the heck of it. Um, so I think there's a, a lot that can happen in terms of what kind of size company you are. But ultimately, it, it comes back to what Doug was talking about is how it matters and who it matters to, because you could have a, a soulless thing that makes you a bunch of money. Um, but does that have staying power? It's probably going to take a little bit more effort to, to make it work. Well, and then as Doug correctly said too, then you got to spend more resources to keep that brand um, in, in the eyes of, 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 of people and, and continue to put money in there. And will, will people do that long-term? And a big, a big like thought exercise. And uh, sometimes you don't know until you try that goes into this is say uh, we hypothetically launched a hard seltzer brand with, uh, I don't know, four flavors and then a variety pack. And just went big and went, so five <laughs> products, because that's how these usually kind of start. If we go to retailers and pitch this, they might say yes. And, and then at which point maybe it's worth doing, but what if they say yes, and then, okay. And then we're going to delete, you know, three of your, you know, poor selling beer brands, like your, your Porter, maybe a, a lager that does well, but it's not going to be like your IPAs that do the big volume. They're, they're going to all of a sudden kill uh, three or maybe five of your brands. And then all of a sudden you're taking a big risk because you're saying, is this seltzer I'm trying to create out of thin air? Um, is that going to be able to outperform these brands that we have had, have a loyal following in my area for that's been building for years and years? Um, or is it going to be the, is the spike from the seltzer sales going to be great for a year or two? And then is it going to die off because people are going to move on to something else? And did I just kill a lot of my like, you know, most loyal, maybe smallish, but most loyal brands. So the, there's usually a price to pay for this. It's usually not just all incremental opportunities on the shelf you're getting, but um, that's something you need to research and figure out, you know, before you decide to, to do this. And it's, it's a tough call because you sometimes you don't know until you've had to create what this thing is. Yeah, and, and Doug, you, maybe you can add onto this too. I had a conversation today with a couple of staff members from a, a medium-sized brewery in New England uh, or small regional, I guess, uh, who, you know, it's like 50 to 60% of their portfolio is a one New England IPA brand. Uh, and they would love to be known for their other beers as well. But when they go to the distributors, you know, they, the distributors want New England IPA because that's going to move very easily. And so it's this back and forth with, okay, so you've got the one and then it's negotiating to maybe get a second placement at some accounts. So maybe it's, you know, it's a sour beer or some kind of seasonal, but then because things can get cramped, it starts getting into this 
uh, this spot where if you want to add something, then you're maybe subtracting uh, along the way, uh, which is a very real thing, especially when you look at, you know, you walk into a grocery store or a liquor store or a convenience store or whatever you, wherever you may shop, like you can see kind of the, the white shelves of the hard seltzer brands uh, encroaching very slowly on the, on the like varied rainbow <laughs> of craft beer options. Like there's only so much space to give and people are making those decisions all the time about what goes where and, and what needs to stay. That's where uh, a, a big decision a lot of breweries have to make is around the brand where it's, is this going to be called something completely different that is completely distanced from our brewery? which has advantages, especially if it fails, um, but other advantages as well. It gets to be its own thing. It could have a different personality from your brewery. If you give it its own name, like if you call, if you were at revolution brewing and you invented white claw, like making it totally the separate animal. Um, but then you're not getting any of the trust that you might've built up over however many years you've been in existence. Say you opened in 2010, like us, and you've got 10 years of equity built up. Maybe people who don't love beer or love the kind of beers you make, but respect that you're a local brewery that a lot of their friends like. And then now all of a sudden you make this brand uh, of seltzer and they're like, Oh, well, I'll try that because I, you know, I'd love to support revolution brewing. I just don't like IPAs or lagers. Um, so if, you know, but then all of a sudden you're attaching your brewery name to the seltzer and it's confusing. And it's like, just do people get that it's a beer, not a seltzer. And so it's, it's just an interesting decision. And I've seen places go both ways with it. And I don't know what, what the right answer is, but it's a, a dilemma. I'm glad I don't have to choose. <laughs> one, one thing I do like for small companies um, is the way that this can play to what they do in their tapper. If we're talking about breweries, for example, like I love the idea of seasonality and locality. If brewery X in my hometown of, you know, 50,000 people in Michigan happens to make a cherry flavored seltzer, you know, that's maybe that's on during the fall, like that's playing to a locally known ingredient that people can have in your tap room. So you don't have to deal with, you know, the challenges that we're talking about of getting it placed in a store outside or, and so I, I think there are ample opportunities there if you're a small producer to kind of find these little pockets of, of space where, you know, I'm not talking about making a, a marshmallow fluff seltzer, s'more seltzer, which would be fun in itself. I think evil twin already did that. Um, but I do think like with your geography, with who you are, with local ingredients, like there is some space to make it unique as a smaller producer that can make it special and not feel like you're extending yourself in ways that really stretch anything beyond your tapper. Well, well and I feel like this also now segs to, uh, I've rearranged my questions because I feel like this is a better seg because you, know, you talk about brand extensions, you know, you, you look at like Bud Light, <clears throat> they decided to call their seltzer Bud Light Seltzer. You know, Coors Light did it and then they decided to stop. Um, but also, you know, to Doug's point, I think of uh, Braxton Brewing in uh, Northern Kentucky, they have Vive Seltzer. Now, granted, that's been around for a while, um, and it, but it's kind of its own personality. It's completely different than, than the, the Braxton, which if you actually go to any of their locations, they're all different. They all have kind of a different personality, which in and of itself is unique. But what do we think about like brand extensions? Is it a good idea to call it, you know, 
say revolution seltzer or 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 not and then um you know what as doug said is that too risky if it all goes horribly wrong because then you've now damaged uh, a brand potentially could, could i offer up a thought experiment with this too Ooh. that i would love all three of us to bounce around because uh, so this past weekend, it was week four of the NFL season, uh, and it's the first week where I've really sat down to watch games at length. Um, and over and over again yesterday, I saw the new commercial for Bud Light Seltzer, uh, which stars, uh, if you're an NFL fan, uh, Eric Mangold, who was a long, long time offensive lineman uh, out of Ohio State, played for the New York Jets. And the whole premise of the commercial is that Bud Light hired this offensive lineman to block the name. Thank you. Yeah. Block the name Bud Light off of the can of Bud Light Seltzer. And this goes back to when they launched this brand. I don't, I don't understand spending tens of millions of dollars over the course of the NFL season to try to explain that your product is not Bud Light that it's called Bud Light Seltzer, but it's not the beer. Like there's just some, I, I don't know. It's just a lack of understanding, some general dissonance. Like I'm just not picking up why this is a valid way to market your product. Yeah, so I have very different thoughts between seltzer and certain um, ways to brand extend within craft beer. But on the seltzer front, uh, first off, I have a, funny story i randomly had a beer with nick mangold about 12 years ago and he was the nicest guy in the world so i don't want to uh bash him in any way because it was a, a pretty funny experience but very very nice gentleman not trying to name <laughs> drop it's like the one famous person uh -huh. i've ever had a beer with um very nice guy uh yeah i always thought this was weird especially though just the way they went about it like to call it Bud Light Seltzer. Like if you were saying, if you want to do a thought experiment, Doug, how would you have branded a Bud Seltzer? I would have used the font of Bud Light and I would have called it Bud Hard Seltzer while diminishing the Bud, making it like crooked or something that differentiates it from the way it appears on a Bud Light can, but still is familiar enough, but put much more emphasis on the Hard Seltzer element so there's familiarity the bud that this is like uh for because they want to make sure anybody moving on from bud light has a home to come to so if you're a bud light fan and you're like I, i'm actually liking seltzer better it's like hey right here right here so you want enough familiarity but yeah to to make it straight up look just like bud to call it bud light uh that's the part i didn't understand so if i were doing it i would have called it bud seltzer bud hard seltzer something like that and uh, de-emphasized the bud a little bit while keeping some of it. Yeah, no, I I, I find the commercials hysterical because I mean, one, I also find it funny that now that he's retired, he's got got this cool commercial because I, I mean, I enjoy the commercial, and, and and it immediately comes to mind right now because I've I've seen it a lot lately. But one, it's weird that they did use the same like font pattern all the way through, so you almost can't even tell a difference. You know, like Doug said, it doesn't really stand out. But also when reading up about that, it's weird that they want to make that a lifestyle brand. Like I have never, I don't, I don't know. Like I get it for Mick Ultra, you know, in that way that it's kind of worked a little bit there with their, that seltzer, because that is a lifestyle. Like Mick Ultra is, you know, low calories, low every, you know, like, I mean, they've, that was their, you know, last real big hit 
when you think about what what they've brought on but i don't get it for bud light like i don't i don't when you picture the who you think's probably drinking a bud light i just don't picture that as a lifestyle brand for a seltzer um yeah i i like the commercials i i just don't yeah that's a lot of money to to be putting into something well they've been doing a very purposeful job uh they're of advertising the suite of offerings uh, and this goes back, you know, uh, into the, the preseason for the NFL and uh, last year during the Super Bowl, if I remember correctly, it's promoting all of the Bud Light options. Uh, you know, Bud Light as a brand has been kind of in slow decline for years at this point. And so adding on to that, I, I get it. And, and promoting these brands as the collection, the family of options, you know, especially if you have a lot of people who are committed as drinkers to, you know, what they know with Budweiser or Bud Light. Um, but it's it's stuff like that. And, you know, this is me not being in the room and armchair quarterback, no pun intended, but uh, it's I, I see stuff like that. And I'm, I'm thinking in real time, like who, like, what is this supposed to be doing for a person who's maybe on the fence? If there's a white claw drinker or truly drinker, or, you know, a Corona hard seltzer drinker, like what is this doing to convince them aside from maybe having a bit of a laugh for 30 seconds? Uh, it's just kind of like, it's all, I just, it's, it's also not for me because I don't think about it like that. And I, I think it'll be interesting to see how it goes long-term because, I mean, Coors already decided to shut theirs down. I don't think Bud Light's going to do that, but it'll be interesting. Now, I will see thinking about brand extensions. Didn't they just announce that they've what, – what's the new one? Is it Bud Light Next? Is that am – I, am I thinking correctly on that? Isn't it something like that? The, the carb-free free. beer, yes. Yeah. So a brand extension. Yeah, I mean, so AB InBev – uh, parent company that owns Bud Light. Um, like this, I think it's it's like four of the top ten hard seltzers. It's Bud Light, it's Michelob, it's Cacti, and Bud Light Platinum. It's just kind of like dangling at the very edge of that too. So it's like they they have success. I mean, it's aided by the fact that they can put these brands anywhere and everywhere. Um, but it's also a case like. I always say, no matter who's making what, whether it's a craft brewer or a multinational conglomerate, you know, if people are buying it, somebody likes it. Um, and so, you know, the, the pivot in a way from what's going on with domestic light lager and defining some of that again, like we're coming back to like kind of uh, a bandaid of sorts, just throwing things against the wall and seeing what's what works. Uh, I mean, you know, for right now, we'll see, but at least, you know, Bud Light's very solid number three, uh, it, way behind White Claw and Truly, but it's it's hanging out there. Doug, what say you? <laughs> um, we can go into the brand extensions I, now, because, you know, I, I, I just, I, the only other thing I really have to say is I think people... Um, would assume that a lot of these decisions have been like been planned in the laboratory for years and years and, and bubble up to this big launch. And that, I, that's not the case at all. These are all very reactionary products that are rushed through their big giant convoluted system to turn into being a product on the shelf. I think everything happens very, very fast and they make mistakes naturally because they they're, they're 
impatient with how they go about these because the competition gets heated up so fast. And so I think it's, it doesn't surprise me that these things happen for those reasons. Well, and it, it goes back to something I've talked about on, on the, the whiskey side, big boys, it's a whole lot harder to do things, uh, you know, fun, you know, creative things because of, of all the layers, but thinking about like the brand extensions, you know, I talk about the Bud Light next, which is with the no carb beer. Um, I think of uh, new Holland, where they completely kind of spun off dragon's milk to be its own thing. Uh, what do we think of those? Cause again, you're adding another layer of, and something else to continue to push and you got to put marketing dollars behind and, you know, it, I mean, it trickles down to even social media accounts now or, or websites. Uh, what, what do you think of, of things like that when you kind of extend a brand and it kind of becomes its own thing? I love these, uh, you know, with, within craft beer, it's, it's so you have so little opportunity to explain yourself to people shopping for your beer. And so when you have a chance to make some of the communication to the customer of what this product is, uh, borrow from one of your, you know, most popular ones that they probably already know. Um, you, I think you absolutely need to use that. Um, I know breweries that are successful that make every beer, this very unique, a piece of artwork where they, you would never know that they necessarily belong next to each other on the shelf. But I'm a big fan of like, we do this with, uh, our hero beers. Uh, every IPA we make has the word hero in it. So we can have fun with the artwork and dedicate more space to the illustration that we love to pay tribute to our own spin on comic art. Uh, we are able to save a lot of what we need to tell the customer by hammering at home that if this says hero, that's an IPA. We don't have to spend as much space. It's, it'll still, of course, say India Pale Ale on it, but we can make that much smaller and lean on the word hero to say things to the customer. When, when Brian was uh, started uh, saying he was talking to a New England brewery and started describing its size, I was, of course, like Zach Galifianakis playing blackjack where all these like <laughs> brewery names and numbers are flying in my head. And the first one that came to mind uh, was uh, Lawson's, who makes a beer called Sip of Sunshine. And I was just trying to Google. I couldn't remember the name of it. But I remember they make this Sip of Sunshine that's like a um, like their own version of, say, Hetty Topper, like a, a pretty big, strong IPA, like maybe in the 7 or 8% range. Um, but they made a much more sessionable version of it uh, years back. And I, I can't remember the name, but it was called something of sunshine as well and changed the color palette, but kept a lot of elements of the can the same where it was clearly a different beer, but you could tell just by glancing at it, that that's an IPA. Cause it's like part of the family, the brand extension of sip of sunshine, their famous beer. So I think doing that's a no brainer, um, you know, two hearted making a, a low-cal IPA and calling it lighthearted versus like this completely new thing. Uh, to me, that's a no-brainer. I think like brand extensions in that sense are, are something you, you got to do for communications uh, reasons. For you guys at, at Rev, what were the lessons that you learned from the heroes and the way that that kind of played that you put into effect for the Freedom series? of the, the session sours? Were there things that applied for what you learned from the IPAs that did well, how to maybe think about branding or communication and all that for the sour series? Um, good question. 
I don't know if this is exactly what you're asking, but we, our hero variety pack is very successful and four years in, it continues to grow for us. And a big reason for that is because we don't take four IPAs that we already have in six packs and then shove them into a variety pack. That's how some breweries go about a variety pack and that's fine, but you shouldn't be surprised when that eventually loses its luster. Um, what we do with our variety pack on the IPA side is we make, we put our flagship in there and then the other three are beers that are unique to that pack. You can't find them anywhere else. So they're exclusives. Um, we also rotate that pack every three months. So those three exclusives change. Now that's expensive and a lot of work. We didn't want to do that with the sours. We just didn't think we could handle a second package that rotated that often doing that many printed cans in a year is a nightmare and not necessarily cost feasible. But um, what we did want to do is not just, we, we, we wanted to take our lead sour, which is freedom of speech. It has the best haha name. And it's just the one that mm -hmm. people that we had made originally. So it had the longest uh, tenure as something people knew what it was. So that's a six pack. And then we made this variety pack also have that in there just to give us one easy one that we're already making. And then we've made three more where the only place you can get those three is in that variety pack. And then it makes that variety pack that much more compelling because the people that like those other flavors, they have to buy 12. They have to buy the variety pack to get it. Now that's not us being greedy. That's like literally we, we couldn't make all of those. We wouldn't be able to get five shelf spots for a sour. Currently we can get away with two right now and we're going to have a third next year. So you go one by one, but, um, that was a, a big learning for us is like, you know, you kind of get what you give. So you get, it's hard to have exclusives in a variety pack, but, and it's hard to, it's even harder to rotate them. But when you do that, it stays more interesting in the eyes of the consumer. And, uh, it, it, it allows sales to hold or, or grow over the long run instead of just kind of eventually dying off. Yeah. There's, um, like, you know, we're talking in the fall and Southern Tier and their various pumpkin beers are a great example of this where they had pumpkin. And then, you know, it is almost on the dot, July 29th, usually each year where they plant their flag and it's pumpkin beer season. They've got, you know, pumpkin, uh, Warlock, which is their stout version. They've got variants of all of those as a way to try to own that kind of seasonal event. Uh, you know, uh, Victory, which still is finding great success uh, with its Golden Monkey Triple, has since spun that off into Sour Monkey, uh, which is one of the best-selling sour beers in the country. Uh, they spun that off into Tart Monkey, and so they now have their Monkey line of beers. And I think there are a lot of examples of that kind of thing where uh, you can find an occasion in a way to really kind of own what that is, which is always something that any business, regardless of what you work in, seeks to do. So like, there's a, the seasonal option there. There's the year-round option as well for general brand awareness. It's just, you know, it, you have to have that right thing. I mean, we see that right now with Sierra Nevada, which just had a, it has a smash hit with Hazy Little Thing, which has changed the trajectory of the company. And now they're releasing a, 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 a citrus wheat called Sunny Little Thing. 
like the, which I don't know if that's going too far. Time will tell, but you know, they've got three different versions of little thing and now they're mm-hmm. seeing where that takes them to. Yeah. No, I, as soon as you say the little thing, I, I, you know, I think of the, the sour versions of that too. So, I mean, it's clearly, yeah. you know, click clicked with, with, with myself now to the other side, you know, when I, I sent out the, the list, you know, we'd have brand extensions. I've also seen more recently some folks doing some brand refreshers. Some going back to their maybe original looks uh, from some of the older craft breweries to, um, I believe um, <clears throat> you even have a, uh, like Shiner, who's doing a heritage edition, uh, you know, putting out older uh, logoed uh, uh, bottles uh, featuring their older logos. What, what do we think about brand refreshers? Because I feel like you can only do that so often because sometimes you'll get a spike, but also you run the risk of maybe it just is a big miss. Yeah, uh, there was an analysis I did uh, earlier this year. Uh, if we recall the whole dust up with Anchor rebranding, refreshing its Anchor Steam, that brand, um, like many other long tenured craft beer brands of that age, had been in a slow decline for a while. Um, and so I looked at the weekly numbers of sales in retail, and the week after the announcement of the uh, the redesign, uh, which also coincided with lots of online uh, negative feedback, sales jumped up basically twice as much as the week before, and then the week at two weeks later went right back to normal. Uh, this is a very extreme example and outlier, but you know, it shows kind of what happens there. And right now we're seeing this a little bit with Dogfish Head, another long, long tenured brewery uh, that is going through a both redesign of all of its packaging, uh, reevaluating its pricing, uh, its pricing and marketing strategies, uh, which has not worked out uh, the way that parent company Boston Beer might seek. Um so it, it, there's some trial and error here, but it's also a case where I think most often the examples that I come across are places that may be doing it a little bit too late, seeing it as a necessary thing rather than a natural way to evolve or show something new or different with a brand that's currently working. Yeah, my favorite way to go about it is to try to make it look better without anybody really noticing. And I've seen some, some do that. Um, Brian hit on some of the big, big breweries. Um, if you think about smaller breweries who start off where they barely think they're ever going to be much more than a brew pub, and then they start canning, maybe using a mobile canner and they're cranking out labels for these, all these one-offs they're doing, they're probably not thinking about like how these brands are going to look next to each other on the shelf. Cause they're just thinking, you know, about their size then. Then you fast forward four or five years and all of a sudden their beer's um, still doing well and there's demand for it and they, they want to distribute all around their city. And then all of a sudden these beers on the shelf don't look so good when you put them next to each other. You, like I was kind of talking about before, you can't even tell that this beer next to this is from the same brewery. And that can be some, come something advantageous to you. So I've seen a lot of breweries, we've done this at uh, Revolution, we've refreshed twice in 11 years. And a lot of it was just like, you know, wanting to make the cans pop more, you know, as, as technology changed and there became more and more you could do with printed cans and making them look better and better. 
um, we just always wanted to kind of evolve our care. We're very character driven on our cans and we wanted to make those look better and better and not just feel stale on the shelf. So it's never been about that short-term bump you get, which is, it's, which is a very real thing. I mean, when you have a brand refresh on the shelf and people see it for the first time, it screams fresh screams new. Like I don't even need to check the code dates. This must be new. Cause it's in that brand new can they did. Um, that's short lived that can last for, you know, three to six months or so, which isn't nothing. Uh, but, um, to me, it's all about, again, communicating to customers. And, and a lot of times you want to use a brand refresh to kind of hit the reset button and, and keep things as close to the, to the original thing as possible. But sometimes there's a few things you can change to make it very clear that these are your beers. I would love it. Uh, I don't know if there's an example, Jonathan, near you that comes to mind. Um, my personal anecdote that I, I really liked was when uh, Genesee Brewery out of Rochester, New York. So they uh, refreshed their branding for the Jenny Cream Ale, which is the beloved like cult favorite uh, back home. Uh, and they gave it kind of a, a retro look, but all the colors were the same. It, the, the font changed to, to heavy cursive, but for people who knew the beer, uh, there wasn't anything that was going to tell you that it was different. It was just, it looked new and exciting in the way that there was something new visually. I immediately bought a t-shirt. Uh, I now have a, a magnet on my fridge. I have a tank top that I wear, you know, uh, weekly here in North Carolina during the summer heat. Uh, and there was something gentle about it, um, that I really liked. And that's like, I think there's a lot of opportunity there, especially with nostalgic brands like that for places that have been around for a long time, where all of a sudden, even if it's just kind of leading into the retro nature of it, it got me excited to think about it again on a visual level of which I don't think I did. Yeah. To, to piggyback on that, it's, it's the sign of a mature brand. Um, and there's different levels of maturity. If you're talking about Genesee or a craft brewery that's been around, uh, 10, 10, 15 years, but, um, you get to a point where the beer is so is so dialed in. There's no, there's nothing left to improve on the beer, but, and it, it's, it's not, uh, it's not never a bad idea to come up with something on the packaging to make it feel fresh in the consumer's eyes, just to stand out a little bit. I, I remember seeing over the beginning of summer a can of Coors Light with uh, a pair of uh, a cool pair of sunglasses on it. And then like the shade like reflected really well. I don't know how they did it, but they used something with the metallics to make the, the frames pop. And I was just like, damn, that's a pretty cool looking can of Coors Light. Like if I, if I was at a, I probably wouldn't buy it at the store, but if I saw that at a bar, I'd be tempted to buy it just because those sunglasses look so cool. And it's just the same beer that's been around for, for decades, but things like that, when you've been around the block, um, they help. It's just, it's, it becomes like, can I make the consumer feel good? Is there something I can do with this can that just makes people, you know, it's the same Coors Light, but does it make you feel good? When I saw that, I was like, oh, that's cool. I kind of <laughs> want that can. <laughs> There's a, like this wild example from Boston beer when they did the, the rebel IPA for Sam Adams, where it's first two years, it sold like gangbusters. And when it debuted at the time, it had set the record for the highest grossing debut of a craft beer brand in chain retail. And then by it was year three or four, 
they had a big push because they reevaluated and redid the recipe. So they had made it to taste different while they were also extending it into a Rebel Rouser, a double IPA, Rebel Rider, a session IPA. Uh, it was just wild what happened so quickly with that brand and the way they tried to both uh, change and backtrack in a way uh, in such a short period of time for such a successful a successful brand. And for, for me, breweries move fast. <laughs> and, and sometimes they, they stumble and fall, fall face first. Um, when you're talking about like brand refreshers, I, I think of two, two stand out to me here in Kentucky, um, just because that's kind of where, for me, I really dove into the craft beer. Mirror Twins, a, a local brewery in, in Lexington, and they when they started, I don't think they had really any clue. Logo was not at the top of their thing. It literally was just an M, a T, and a B, and like a diamond. And if you really get to know, know them, the head brewer owner is a Mirror Twin. You know, he's, you know, right-handed, brothers left-handed. And so when they did their brand refresher and took over their built, they now have like two buildings um, and kind of have a nice little beer garden area. They actually did a really cool version of the logo. I'm drinking some of their stuff right now, but they don't have a big, big logo, but it's a hop kind of split in half, black and white, one black being one way and white being the other. And it, it, I mean, talk about something that pops when you see it, especially when you're there but they still have the old logo on the side of the can kind of just a, as an homage. And they have that on some of their t-shirts, which, which I appreciate. Um, but they're, they're not out in stores They're they're but the people will flock to buy when they do their, their releases and so forth. But the one I'm curious to see long-term is Goodwood because one, they're going in lots of different places. Now uh, they put a brew pub in Indianapolis. They've got one here in Lexington, Frankfurt, Louisville, I think they're putting one out in some other place in, in Kentucky, but they're redoing all their cans because they used to kind of have a bat logo, kind of bat feel to it, you know, that wood grain, and they're starting to get away from it. And I'm just curious to see uh, how, how that'll go and if that's part of just where they're extending further around and a bat and wood might not work in, say, Indiana compared to Louisville, Kentucky. Yeah, I feel like that's also a space where a lot of businesses start to consider what it is um, for their branding and marketing, where it's kind of forced by growth, that if they're entering a new space, there's something that they have to do in order to, to stand out or reevaluate what they might be for brand new consumers. Um you know, you, when you have a set fan base locally, there's less effort to try to maybe um, look at more traditional marketing methods. You know, we won X number of medals, uh, which is just kind of like a generic broad thing that is supposed to indicate quality. Uh, but when you enter new markets that can act as kind of this uh, strange like fulcrum point, like do you, are you doing this because you're going into a new space or are you doing this because it simply makes sense? Yeah. Especially if you go from selling all your beer out of your location where you don't need to educate people on who makes this beer because they found out about it either at your location or on your social media where it's obvious. And all of a sudden it's on a shelf at the wine superstore where there's 2000 SKUs <laughs> and all of a sudden you're fighting to grab someone's eyes. If your name is on like the backside of the label opposite the artwork, like that could be a problem. 
that design better be very uh, eye-catching to get somebody to touch your can, turn it to see who even makes this or what it is. So yeah, it's a certain things you can get away with when it's when you're selling all your beer out out the front front door. That uh, doesn't really work when you want to get to a bigger size and reach people who aren't hanging on your every word on social media and out looking for an exact product of yours. They're just shopping with their eyeballs on the shelf. And, and, you know, we, we talk about, you know, you mentioned dogfish head earlier, Brian, with, you know, they've kind of now, well, not kind of the, you know, they merged with Boston beer and, and really Boston beer is the one that kind of sparks this next question. You know, they're working with Mountain Dew, (laughs) Pepsi, you know, to come up with a a hard Mountain Dew because that's what everyone wants. And then, you know, but they're also working like with Bean um, Suntory to work on those ready to drink cocktails, get better distribution. Uh, we even see this in the beer world with Yingling and Coors, uh, you know, coming together to get Yingling uh, distributed out West. What I'm guessing, is this just a thing now to get, if you need to scale a certain way that it's much easier to do the partnership than to try to just continue to build bigger? I mean, fittingly, I think it, it touches on themes that we've talked about uh, tonight, which is ease of understanding and access in a way. Uh, I am still waiting for Molson Coors to launch a hard coffee through the La Colombe uh, brand than it has of our ready to drink coffees. Like that just is like, I'm just, this is, it's screaming to be done. Uh, but uh, or are you just wanting this out there so you can get like some uh it's like, <laughs> some kickbacks there's a, there's a lot of market forces just like i'm just waiting for this to happen just because it seems like this should be and you know with the beam centauri thing with boston beer you know this is for boston beer to potentially be making flavored malt beverage versions of uh of through their tequila brands uh, and vice versa, truly flavored spirits through Beam Suntory. You know, Boston Beer, on top of all this, too, has a burgeoning um, cannabis collection of investments in Canada as well. Uh, there's, if you look at large companies, AB and Bev, Constellation, Molson Coors, uh, Boston Beer, the diverse, diversification of where they're looking at as beverage companies. Um, is important in terms of survival and just like the modernity of the industry that they exist in. Um, I mean, so as we're talking, this week was the National Beer Wholesalers Association. Uh, they just announced that they will be adding beverage to their name uh, to reflect the fact that wholesalers around the country are now carrying things far beyond beer, also by beer producers. I think it's just, there's just a lot of contemporary, both benefits and challenges in the alcohol space that shows that these kinds of partnerships, especially with established brands, can be beneficial. Yeah, on, the, uh, on this front, I'd love to talk about partnerships from a, a different angle too, but um, the way I think of, and these aren't facts, these are just what I kind of assume when I hear about things like uh, Miller Coors or Molson Coors making Topo Chico um, and and um, the, the Beam Centauri, the Mountain Dew, uh, to me, that's those brands, Topo Chico, Mountain Dew, et cetera, um, 
basically like signing over signing out their brand and just a there's a revenue stream there of basically collecting a royalty and not having mm-hmm. to do all the work sure they could build facilities that they don't have any reason to have right now and put all this capital into it or like brian said there's all this capital online already why not save yourself all that infrastructure and make this as simple as you can on your books make possibly less but again i'm, I'm a big fan of avoiding distractions uh make it somebody else's problem by giving them a nice cut of it but not have to do any work and it just creates a new rev- revenue stream so um the challenge of that is will it ever be high enough in the priority of the person you're handing the brand over to they have so many others and you're kind of fighting for share of mind not just with the distributors but the actual uh, supplier as well and keeping what you do top of mind. And if it all of a sudden dips, is it going to lose anyone, everyone's attention? That's of course the risk you take with this. But um, to me, that's why those are such a big thing. And this is, it's, this is absolutely like the year of that, or maybe the last two years, there's been a ton of that. Um, There's other kinds of partnerships that I find, if you don't mind, if I just Mm -hmm. switch gears real quick, that I think are very fascinating. Jonathan, you mentioned Yingling. And uh, I thought you were going to go in a different direction. Oh, uh, yeah, Hershey? When I, when I, I was going to say Yingling and Hershey. Because yep. to me, like there are bad versions of this, uh, but this one is like perfect. Yingling, mm-hmm. I grew up in Pennsylvania. Um, Yingling is a staple in that state, as well as Hershey. I grew up going to Hershey Park. I have family that live in Hershey, Pennsylvania. For those two to collaborate on a chocolate porter is genius. I mean, that is just like, you know, two brands that people in this, especially in this local market, which is both of these companies' hometown, um, are very, very loyal to. Um, for them to come together on a product is is awesome. I mean, that gets people, new people, excited about beer. People who maybe would only drink uh, Iron City or uh, you know Miller Coors, but uh, getting buying a, a chocolate porter who would never normally buy a chocolate porter, but when it has Hershey on the label versus just chocolate porter, that all of a sudden tipped the scale for them. So that's really interesting. There's some weird ones like Oscar blues did one with a must, uh, I forget which one, but a mustard company and they made a, a kettle sour. Which is mustard. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that, that was one where I was like, I, I would like to try, I didn't end up trying it, but I was like, I'd like to try this. This doesn't seem like something that will be around next year. <laughs> um, whereas the chocolate Porter from Yingling and Hershey seems like a thing that we'll see probably every year. Um, but those kind of partnerships where it's like two brands, especially when there's like a local element to it, um, two hometown companies that uh, the local uh, fans have known and loved forever uh, coming together. It's just, it's fun. And I say, why not to all of that? I don't know if you guys saw the way that the hard Mountain Dew is going to be made by Boston Beer is a shipment of distilled Mountain Dew is going to arrive at facilities owned by Boston Beer to turn it into the hard version of that soda I'm just, I'm just thinking cans of just this dis- distillate of mountain dew uh i wouldn't I be shocked if it's not a tanker burn your skin off a it's, tanker truck it's not it's not dissimilar from how mountain dew and coca-cola uh at least used to be made where the syrup was made by one company and a completely different company was the bottler 
and they turned that syrup and and mixed it with water and turned it into coca-cola so i guess it's like a uh, more complicated version of the same yeah. thing but but and but to your point brian I, I think of when i talked to uh foundry distilling out of iowa they did a they do a lot of malt uh whiskeys based off of beer like they get the distillate of the beer and like um, they did one from Boulevard and they literally trucked it up in a tanker truck <laughs> up to, mm. and then, you know, they t- turned it, you know, did the the next couple of steps, but they've worked with uh, a whole bunch of other ones. That's kind of another unique partnership where I think they work with stone and, and, and Boulevard and some other uh, local Iowa breweries to turn their beer into a whiskey. Yeah. I, I think there are like, I don't know if this registers for the general public or not, but I feel like the easy thing to poke at is like celebrity partnerships which are can be very very successful um and it because it could be because people have affinity for the particular person who's behind a brand like zoa energy drink which is Dwayne the rock johnson's uh beverage which is uh sold through the molson cores has been like a resounding hit for that company um and i don't know if that's just because people like love Dwayne Johnson, uh, or I don't drink energy drinks. So it could be a very great drink. Uh, there's like ad nauseum, like Sarah Jessica Parker has a wine, um, you know, Stone Cold Steve Austin has a beer. Um, you know, there is, uh, like any version of this you could have for beer, wine, or spirits. Uh, Travis Scott has cacti hard seltzer. Uh, there's like a lot of things that f- can feel very forced, but have that momentary excitement for people too. Uh, but for large companies that are trying to find new ways to stay exciting, uh, whether it's for like really great partnerships that make sense or just for the sake of a kind of a flash in the pan thing. Um, it feels like in the general, like food and beverage world, there's a lot of interest right now, um, in the way that that might create a sudden boon, uh, for brands that may otherwise feel a little tired. Yeah. And, and these days with, uh, people are watching less commercials on TV than ever because they're watching streaming by paying for it or they're, they have it on DVR. So they're fast forwarding through the commercials. Uh, it's possible that partnering with the rock and getting the occasional shout out that you get from the rocks, social media, which has. God knows how many tens of millions of followers that that's going to get that the cutting the rock into your revenue stream might be way smarter and more advantageous than buying these commercial buys that fewer and fewer people are watching unless it's like during an NFL game when there's, you know, you're not going to turn the channel. Like there's very few opportunities. So um, that's another big plus of, of those partnerships. I'm not the biggest fan of them like lasting, or I guess I wouldn't predict that many of these will, will make it very far, but that's, we'll see. I'm happy to be wrong on that. This is an actual thought that I've had now for like two months in a row. I have been patiently waiting for, uh, the Nelk boys, happy dad, hard seltzer to appear in IRI data sets. The Nelk boys are like world renowned, famous YouTubers I don't know who they are aside from they seem to be very excited and have great early success with this hard seltzer brand. I mean, you just never know. I, I feel like anymore, it's like with movies and TV shows, you reboot the, if it's a, you know, 
IP, a well-known intellectual property. That's what they want. Cause as Doug said, it's, you know, less marketing on that point. But uh, another interesting thing that I want to finish off the show with is engaging through social media. Cause we, we've talked about this a lot and, and Doug has really talked about this, about how sometimes craft breweries are a little late to the game. Uh, you know, I, and I, I've even talked to some other companies, you know, with what I do about, and then when I mentioned that we're on TikTok, not that I have a ton of followers, but go follow us at Hop Spirits on TikTok. Um, uh, you know, that a lot of people are wanting to get into those, but they don't really know how to. Um, but I, I guess for, we'll kick this one off to Doug, though, because I know he's a, you know, he, he's built up a nice following uh, with some fun videos on, on TikTok, Instagram and so forth. But engaging through social media, how important is that? But also not to just do the almost kind of what I'm guilty of is. You know what you're going to get from me three days out of the week on, on, on Instagram or TikTok. Uh, how, how do you, you know, you do all these and then deal with all the new ones that pop up? New social mediums? Uh-huh. Um, I don't know. Uh, so I, <laughs> I'm, I love, I love all this. I mean, this is how I got into beer. I, you know, I want, I decided I wanted to get into beer. And I didn't know how else to do it. So I just started talking about beer on Instagram. I think I, in 2012, I think an account got fed to me in like an explore feed that was someone that had an all beer feed. And I had like never thought to like not have it just be like, you know, those crappy pictures of a sun setting uh, to, but to actually like make an Instagram feed around a niche that I was um, excited about. So I just did it and did it really early. And that's it totally changed the course of my career it got me out of a um career path that i didn't really want to be on it was something i was good about it but it didn't get me excited uh social media gave me a chance without like having to pay way too much money to get like an mba or get a master's in something uh social media gave me a uh, kind of a platform to explore a new path going that way I thought, he, I thought he was going to say he got a degree on social media. I was going to be like, whoa, I didn't think that was possible. <laughs> I'm sure that exists somewhere. But no, I mean, that's just why it's always been something I've been passionate about and tried to, to build on and be uh, you know, willing to change because it is always changing. What was, what was a good social media post in 2013 is uh, it would die a quick death today um, because the, the ante has been upped. And, uh, the tools given to you have, have as well, but, um, I don't know. I've, I, I, I saw TikTok early. Um, a, f- a few smart people I know told me I should pay attention to it. So I did, I got on and I quickly realized it was just more compelling content. The way I describe TikTok is like, we had a meme, we had memes go for a while where it was a picture with words on it. That was funny. And then we had a GIF where it was like, okay, the natural evolution of a meme is this thing is moving. And now TikTok has kind of become acting out your own situation. And uh, that can be done professionally. That can be done to explain how something works. It can be done to just make people laugh. Um, There's so much creativity that goes into uh, TikTok specifically that I think allows people interested in just about anything in this world kind of quickly find other people um, who are interested in the same thing. And if they decide, hey, I want to not just 
participate in this conversation, but I want to be somebody in this. They can work hard at it and they can all of a sudden become like a, you know, thought leader or, uh, you know, a personality within this niche. So, um, I just think it's fascinating. And, and I, I, I think you get out of it, what you put into it. If you try really hard on TikTok, you'll probably get really good results. If you're lazy about it, you probably won't get good results. So, um, I think it's the new, it's last thought before I'll turn it over to you for some other thoughts. Uh, I hear the complaint I hear from craft breweries all the time. Anytime I get into a conversation with anybody about Facebook, it's, it's like Facebook is burying all of our posts. You know, nobody sees our posts and, uh, it's, it's crap, you know, screw Zuckerberg, blah, 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 blah. But then if you go look at their posts, it's just like a picture of their chalkboard every day with what beers are on tap. That's almost the same as yesterday's maybe with one change. And it's like, maybe Facebook is doing your followers a favor <laughs> by only showing the 10% who might actually be likely to want to see that and sparing the other 90% who don't need to see the chalkboard every day. Cause they live an hour away. They're not going to be coming every day. So it's one of those things where it's like, you know, good, even on Facebook, which is the hardest to do well on these days, good content still gets seen by a lot of people, things that are newsworthy, things that are different, uh, that spark a conversation they still do well, but, but the organic growth is dead on Facebook and it's pretty dead on Instagram. Like whatever your following is now, you kind of have to be the best at what you do for that thing to take off. Everybody's kind of at a stalemate unless you're like, the best at it. Whereas TikTok being so new is still in this early stage where people are looking to curate a following. So you don't have to be the best to get somebody to follow you because everybody's kind of bright eyed and bushy tailed right now of like, what is this craziness? This is exciting. This is so much more dynamic than any of my other social feeds. I'm into this. Oh, this person likes beer. Cool. I'll follow them. That was an entertaining video. Or this person seems to, they reviewed a beer and they did it in a kind of quick, clever way. Uh, I want to see more of that. I'll follow them. Whereas Instagram, they could see that same person and be like, no, you know, everybody's kind of set on how many people they're following. It's very hard to get an Instagram follower these days. So that to me is why TikTok is so exciting is just because it's still very early and it's growing fast. And I think the content on it there's certainly tons of crap like there is on every uh, medium, but um, to me, it's the most fun, new and creative content out there. Still waiting for Doug to like my Instagram posts. Um, I, there, there, there are two, there are two things I think I th that I think about. First you got to post, you have to post more often. <laughs> <laughs> um, I often think about these things in terms of what it means for a business in how these are meant to be extensions of what they're trying to do in the real world. Uh, like there's a real integrated marketing communications to use fancy specific language about it, where, you know, so often brewers uh, will talk about their efforts to build in their community and show support and connect in real life with people. There's a brewery out of Florida called Tripping Animals. Um, one of the things I like that they do on their Instagram feed is they are constantly highlighting members of their staff. Uh, it's people and it's people who are making the beer behind the scenes, servers, like 
whether or not this reaches a ton of people is perhaps less important that for the three people who see this and have some kind of momentary connection with the person that they're featuring that day from their staff, that could be a point of, you know, of human interest when they come into your brewery next. Maybe they saw the person who is their server behind the bar was featured on their Instagram feed the last week and you know their name or you know some fact about it. Like that's that's a fun way to try to build that kind of affinity and understanding and connection that takes little effort but ultimately matters, even if it's in a small way. Like it it has the ability to convert one person, it matters. Uh, and doubly so, uh, earlier uh, this year, I had a conversation uh, with Hannah Chamberlain, who is the creator behind Spirited LA, um, sizable following on Instagram, exponentially sized following on TikTok. Uh, Hannah makes, creates cocktails, talks about spirits. And one of the things that she told me that has really resonated is that transition going from Instagram to TikTok, all of a sudden she was dealing with people that were far more novice, but far more invested that on Instagram, she kept on running into people who are asking her very, very esoteric specific questions on this or that people who felt themselves to be very in the know or experts, but on TikTok, it was people who just wanted to learn. And it was fun and new. And that's what kind of gave her the excitement to continue creating there. And, you know, whether that or not, that's something that, you know, companies do or as individuals see as an opportunity. I think that kind of thing, and I think this echoes what Doug was saying, this uh, almost uh, innocence <laughs> in a way, if that exists anymore in social media, um, of like, earnest and honest curiosity, because we can only talk so much about ways to try to find new customers, new fans, new human beings who would be interested in who we are and what we put out into the world until we actually have to maybe try to like connect with them. And so I think when we, when we find those spaces to actually interact and hear from people who you wouldn't be able to engage with in real life otherwise, who could be that one or two people that all of a sudden becomes interested in the bourbon you're making or the beer you're making or the wine that you're going to release. Like these are opportunities that can be really special to one person and that matters. Whereas it could be very easy to think about the large scale, you know, oh, I need this many conversions to make it worth my while. I have to reach this many people. Um, the personal side of things, which I think is what I'm talking about and I'm fairly certain is what Doug was talking about can really matter. Yeah, it is, it is very, very different people on TikTok and maybe for different reasons than uh, Hannah, but it, it intrigues me so much. Like one of my first posts that kind of blew up in the algorithm and got like tons of riffraff uh, commenting in it. Um, it just, my comments got just blasted with people saying IPAs suck, sours are the best style. Sour, 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 sours are amazing. Why don't you talk about sours? Sour, 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 sour. And I was like, and I love sours, but anywhere else I go and talk about beer, people are like, why do you like sours? And then like literally the next day, uh, there was a day where I just tried to, I fired off a bunch of pro sour comments on Twitter 
and just got annihilated by people like what are you talking about like sours have been dead sours haven't been cool since 2014 and i was like i love this i love that <laughs> my feeds are very different people because sometimes you don't want to just like repeat the same things so it it kind of then teaches you how you can curate to the different ones if it's something you want to do which i you know like i said i enjoy doing this kind of thing but it was fascinating to me i was like i must be dealing with a maybe a younger demographic or maybe just a different, maybe just different group of people. Cause it's clearly people of all ages. Um, um, it's not just like 20 something things I'm talking to. I mean, there's, it's not that, so I don't know what it is, but there it, is, it is um, fascinating. To me. Yeah. Uh, a colleague peer of Doug, uh, of all of ours, uh, Man Mandy Naglich, uh, incredibly successful home brewer, um, goes by beers with Mandy on social media. Uh, she she does a lot of educational efforts and outreach, and I was actually just flipping through some of her TikTok videos yesterday, and she has a few of them pinned at the top of her TikTok feed, which are kind of explanatory educational videos that have done really, really well. And then, uh, Doug, you'll probably love this. One of the big questions that he had pinned from a viewer was, uh, my boyfriend loves sours can you tell me how to make sour beer with homebrew, like make a homebrew sour oh. beer? And like, that's amazing. Like, and that, that's like all of these things that we're talking about, that it's someone who doesn't really understand, but like knows that this like sour beer exists and someone they care about likes that too. And that's the space where they see an expert and have the comfort to both reach out and realize that they'll probably get something back that betters their experience with that thing, which I think is awesome. I, I guess my, my, my thought is though, is, you know, brewers are, that's not what they're good at. <laughs> they didn't get into brewing to do social media per se. You know, I mean, I'm being honest. I mean, sure, most absolutely. are not, not, not marketing people. How, how do you, you know, like Doug or, or even Brian, like, how do you push someone to be willing to show more of themselves? Cause I guarantee you, you could do a great TikTok of the brewers trying to, you know, especially if they're doing some funky, you know, think of the one uh, like Mary Twain. They did, they got donuts from Spalding Donuts because, you know, the, at the end of the day, they can't sell them. They're not, not going to throw them out. So they brought them over. They put them in the beer, you know, kind of like the tea bag type thing. Put them in. Tell me that wouldn't be really cool content, but how do you get people to think that way? Uh, to kind of show that fun side. Cause I mean, I feel like that's the hardest part is pushing someone to that fun side. So, I mean, <clears throat> I think you learn by doing with this stuff or learn by watching. So I probably, you know, most people spend months looking at TikTok before they ever post anything that's not common. So, you know, first off, the person has to want to do this stuff. We, I, me and the other people in marketing at, at, at the company, we, we poke around and we kind of ask people like, do you want to be on social media? And some people are like, yeah, I'd love to, can you help with that? And we're like, absolutely. But then there's a lot of people who are like, no, don't want to be on. And I totally get it. Um, so you have to find the people that first off want to be on the camera because it might only be like a third of the people you're dealing with. I'm making up that number. Um, but then to, to get, to get the creativity going, you have to, you have to consume a lot of good content to make good content. I mean, if you're just a leader in your field, of course, you can, you can make 
compelling content, but not everybody's a leader in their field. So, um, and I'm not in any way talking about copying. There's a ton of copying on TikTok that's garbage. If somebody has a funny idea, it blows up and someone does the exact same thing. Like that's stupid to me. But then there's what, what TikTok is famous for. Somebody does something funny in one niche and then somebody in another one does their adaptation of it. And that's the fun stuff. And that's what catches on. And then people who have, you know, six different hobbies that TikTok's aware of and gets fed content from all six of those hobbies, they get to see, you know, the different spins on these trends going and uh, it gives them a good laugh. And uh, that stuff is, is fun, but you gotta, you gotta spend time on the app to do it. Well, like if someone says, Doug, I want to be on TikTok, but I don't know how to make good TikToks. The first time thing I'd say is, you know, watch a bunch of TikToks. That's, that's just the simple, simple answer. Um, and then uh, maybe more than what you're asking, but the way I go about it is anytime I see here, like a, a song uh, on a TikTok or like a soundbite where an idea related and it, they typically, the stuff I get fed to me is, is like almost nothing beer related. It's other things I am interested in. Um, but I'll hear a soundbite from one niche and I'll, I'll just save that video because I had an idea but now's not the time I'm in, I'm just doing this like on the couch and going to bed in a minute, but I save these. And then that's like my idea list for when I do have time to knock a few of these out. And then I wait for like three of them that I can knock out at a time. And they can really only, sometimes they only take a minute or two. They're really easy. It's actually a lot easier than what I used to do on Instagram with photography and editing. These are way, way faster. So, um, Sorry for the tangent there, but, um, yeah, you just gotta, you gotta find people doing some, something that you, there's many different things you're interested in and that's where inspiration can come from. So Brian, are you, are you going to get on TikTok and do some fun things? I am on TikTok. I am not doing fun things. I am lurking in the shadows. Uh, Doug, I haven't liked any of your posts yet, but I've seen them all. I promise you. <laughs> okay. I, I think I, like I, there's... There's a real thing, like, I think about like stand-up comedy a lot in terms of like what, what we see versus what happens that we don't see. So like every John Mulaney bit or Jerry Seinfeld bit, like that we see on Netflix has been practiced and reduced and honed 35 times before the final version. And so like, I mean, you could apply this to, to all sorts of things in life. Uh, but like that kind of watching and figuring out how to use these kind of platforms and do it in a great way that fits you and the people around you. Like there's a lot there where, you know, you may see the final product. I think Doug is really good at this and is like, just, he cranks out really smart things. That's from me as a viewer is muscle memory at this point. Uh, but like, there is like, you know, you see something 30 times and then it clicks and then you know what that's supposed to be. And then it's just kind of starts rolling. Yeah. I, I just want to know who's your uh, camera person, Doug. Are, are you bribing your wife or <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> the, uh, the lonely answer is that there's no camera person. It's all with just like a, a tripod, <laughs> which is kind of good that I'm not making someone else. So I'm not subjecting someone else to this, but it's, it's also embarrassing that I'm doing this by myself. <laughs> Even at the brewery. So Brian, I've got like the perfect, if I may, like TikTok angle for you. 
Ooh. So like given what you do and what you write about uh, for beer, imagine if like you created, I don't know, an, an endless number, but let's say you created these eight characters and one of them was like hard seltzer company. And so when it's hard seltzer company talking, they would have like a white t-shirt and a white backwards hat or something like that. And then another one would be like uh, macro brewery. And maybe that one, you'd have a blue t-shirt and a red hat for like Miller and Bud. But they, these would just be like your quick couple like t-shirts that would just be like in a pile on the floor. But like whenever there's like big news or conversation or a debate, you could do this like reenactment where it's Brian, but you're just like talking to yourself in the comedy TikTok way. But you could put this like reporting aspect to it or like rehashing something that happened in the beer news by doing it with these characters in just like a 30 to 60 second format. I think that it's, it's like a quarter baked idea. Needs some refinement. All right. I, I'm think gonna, you, I think that would be funny. I'm going to bother you for that half baked idea to follow up on them. Okay. <laughs> hey, I, I love it. Also, if you have, if you don't follow any of these, these guys on, on social media, please do. Brian, I always enjoy your Twitter where you lovingly go back to the original tweet of, uh, you know, beer's dead or, or seltzer's dead or anything like that. Nobody likes beer anymore. <laughs> exactly. Uh, it, it, it is a lot of fun. Uh, don't forget to follow us on all of our social media at Hop Spirits. It's like I said, as long as it's working, who knows? And, you know, Facebook, Instagram, we're down for a while this week. So I don't know, maybe, maybe it'll all be on TikTok. You can also find us on YouTube and hopspirits.com. Brian, Doug, thank you so much. Thanks, Jonathan. Good talking to you, Brian. Milk boys, happy dad.